You're listening to the Monumental Me Mindshare Podcast. We're collecting stories and having conversations with real people who inspire us to thrive in life. Thinkers and doers and people like you. This is Liana Slater of Monumental Me. Today I'm speaking with Andre Pinard. Andre is the Director of Community, Mindset, and Culture at Adidas. Andre sets the vision and strategy for premium community experiences for Adidas consumers. He is going well beyond selling athletic gear and is leading his team at Adidas to make a huge positive impact and create sustainable change for underserved Black and Latinx communities, communities that Adidas have long benefited from and now to which they're truly giving back. Andre and I also talk about how a liberal arts degree in political science and advanced degrees in sociology have prepared him well in his successful career in marketing and advertising. Andre is a true change maker. You'll want to hear every word of this conversation we had just for you. Thanks for listening. We took this emotional trauma and we turned it into a document called Our State of Emergency, which was about a 20-page document that we put together over the course of two weeks. And we had the opportunity to present that to the board, to the global board of Adidas, which is rather unprecedented. We talked about accountability. So just in terms of anything having to do with discrimination or job opportunities or what have you. So we talked about accountability. We talked about people, meaning growth and development. We talked about investing back into the communities that we extract a lot from or communities that we use in our marketing and our communications but might not be invested in. And so this document really set up uh, a number of ask for the brand to reinvest into its Black and Latinx communities and consumers. And out of that document and then presenting it to the board, we garnered a $150 million commitment from the brand. That $150 million is committed to the years of 2020 through 2025 for us to create initiatives, create jobs, and create opportunities specifically catering to Black and Latinx communities within North America, which is something that is unprecedented in the history of Adidas, which is one of the oldest athletic performance brands in the world. What that turns into is the creation of of new jobs, the creations of initiatives that are, once again, centered on empowering and creating access and creating something that we've dubbed called the change loop, which is taking young people from being just consumers to allowing them um, a set of resources, tools, and, and education for them to move along the spectrum of being consumers to creators to actual change makers. Because we know we're living in a society right now where change makers are probably the most valuable human resources that we can get. And so how do we create a, a number of environments and a number of um, experiences that allow young people to go along that path? And so. Adidas is actually in the midst of creating that and implementing that and operationalizing that as we speak. You, Andre, seem to have a very cool job. And I want to start just by getting a sense of what your current role is and what you do at Adidas as the Director of Communities, Mindset and Culture. And then I will come back and ask you more about kind of how you built your career and how you got to where you are today. So if you could just start out by telling us exactly what you do. The title is a little bit of a mouthful, the Director of Community Mindset and Culture. I was blessed and fortunate enough to be able to create my own job title and own job description. And I think that is a very unique and blessed place to be, especially for a 
soon to be or just turned 50 year old man of color. That title, in effect, what I do in a nutshell is I work in a marketing function, a global marketing function at Adidas, Adidas. And my remit is around global consumer insights, which is the mindset and culture component of it. And then there is a remit, which is what I'm responsible for is helping to grow communities for respective business units within the organization. And and what that means in layman's terms is just being able to find ways of bringing our mission to life, which is through sport, we have the power to change lives. And within Adidas, there are multiple business units, soccer, running, basketball, you name it. And I help build communities around those different business units that connect with our consumers, our youth consumers on the ground and enable them to meet at the intersection of sport, culture, and and wellness. I'll leave it there. I love that. I mean, that all just sounds so useful in this world. And that's one thing I love about marketing and branding. I do think that can, it can be so useful. So just to clarify a little bit more about, and I know you said Adidas, which is the proper way to say it, but the Americans, <laughs> we'll I think for the most part. <laughs> Sorry? I said, we can say Adidas from here on in because we are- Because that's the American way, right? Or Because yeah. my British husband says Adidas, so- <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just comfortable saying Adidas. But and tell me, in an, I think you just kind of explained it, but tell me in a nutshell what the Adidas brand is really best known for. Just try to get that positioning in, in my head. Ultimately, um, I think globally, Adidas is synonymous with soccer, aka football, right? European soccer. I think it has a huge heritage in the sport of soccer. But I think domestically in North America and the United States of America, the history of Adidas is very closely tied to hip-hop culture. And that is because of its relationship in the 80s with Run DMC. And Run DMC, there was a marketer in Adidas who heard about these guys that were that put on a concert and were talking about my Adidas. And this guy was, was quite crafty and found his way to connecting with the artists that were in Run DMC. And they, they forged, I believe, one of the first lifestyle partnerships and endorsements of a hip-hop group or of a musical act. I think up until that point, there hadn't been too many sports where brands that were partnering with artists, if you will. And so they were pioneers in the sense that they, they saw the value that these artists had in the community that they represented and the power of hip-hop culture that they were at the at the forefront of. And so short answer is I say hip-hop culture, collaborations, artists from Beyonce to Pharrell to Jeremy Scott. I think that's what Adidas is synonymous for in North America, the, in the collaboration that they do and the creativity that they have. And globally, I think it's tied to sport uh, and that sport is soccer. So my, my function and the, the role that I have, it's called Key Cities. And the role of Key Cities, Adidas has currently six Key Cities and we'll be expanding to more, but six Key Cities around the world, New York, LA, Paris, London, Shanghai, Tokyo. And the job of the Key Cities team is to really try to hyper-localize the way in which we show up at retail through our activations and through our uh, partners. And so long and short, we act as a translator and as a, a cultural guide, if you will, for this brand that is European, that sits in headquarters in Germany. How do you use our team to kind of, once again, hyper-localize how we show up, how we sound, how we express ourselves, the way our products look, the way our stores look? That is the job of the Key Cities team, which I'm a part of. 
That's one piece of it. And then my other uh, piece of my job is tied to global consumer insights, which is helping the brand, the global organization understand our millennial Gen Alpha, Gen Z consumers from a values, a needs, and a wants perspective. Thank you for explaining all that. So and I want to go back now and just talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today. One reason I'm so interested to speak to you is we both attended a liberal arts college. We both mm-hmm. went to Connecticut College. And I know you have a degree in sociology. I think you also have a master's and I think you're working on your PhD in sociology too. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> so I think you're, you're the right person to ask, what can you do with a degree in sociology? And it sounds like you're doing something so <laughs> useful as well, interesting. So if you want to, that's kind of a broad question, but can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, the, the value of your sociology degree? You're Obviously, you're so interested in, well, you, you should speak. So, so let's start there. What's the value of your sociology degree and how did that help to get you where you are right now? Well, interesting enough, what got me to sociology in post, post undergrad was, and as you said, our alma mater is Con College, Go Camels. At Connecticut College, I majored in government, aka poli sci, and Africana studies. In the 90s, you know, politics and Africana studies and identity were really big for me as a, as a young man of color coming from Princeton, which was a predominantly uh, white, beautiful, liberal town. You know, it was not a big step for me to go to Con College and play lacrosse there and, and really be immersed in kind of a, a New England-ish environment. But, you know, I was always interested in politics, maybe because my parents are from the West Indies and they're from the island of Haiti. And Haiti in the 80s and 90s was very politicized. And and politics were always being talked about in my home. So I was interested in politics quite a bit. And I was also interested in Africana studies, which was just kind of this hyper notion of like, what does it mean to be a person of color in the world, right, globally. And those two things allowed me to end up after graduating in 94 to getting a fellowship from Brown University to go and teach in New York City. And then eventually from that teaching opportunity through Brown called Teachers for Tomorrow, I think the program was called, not Teach for America, but Teach for Tomorrow. And then from there, I got into fashion advertising, wildly enough. And then from getting to your question about sociology, a friend of mine had been in a documentary about young African-American males who had gone to predominantly small private schools. So Exeter, Chilt, schools of that caliber. And this friend of mine who went to Khan, as a matter of fact, had gone to, I believe he went to Northfield Mount Hermon. And he was a student athlete there. So long in the short, but his roots were in Harlem. There was an ethnographer who created a documentary and my friend was in it. And we met the ethnographer and he was a professor at the New School for Social Research in Manhattan. And he was phenomenal. And we were like, how do you get to basically tell stories about people and create films and, 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 and be an academic. And it was something that was amazing for us because he was a man of color. He was an African-American male. And so fast forward when I got disenchanted, or maybe rewinding, when I got disenchanted with the world of fashion, fashion advertising, I, I, I found this man by the name of Terry Williams and told him I was at this impasse where I taught and then I was really into fashion and identity. And he said, you know, you should come to grad school. <laughs> and I was also into photography and documenting New York. And he said, we have a really multidisciplinary and dynamic program at the new school, the graduate faculty, and you should consider coming. And I was like, all right, how do I put that all together? And he was like, well, you are an ethnographer. What you do is ethnography. You like to study people, you're into fashion, and you like to document things. And so 
I believe that you're an ethnographer and ethnography falls under this umbrella of sociology. And I think you should come into my department because he was kind of leading the department at the time. So fast forward, I had the opportunity to apply to the school, to get into the school. And I went into a master's PhD program in sociology at the New School for Social Research and ended up teaching undergrad for a little bit at Eugene Lang, which is tied to Parsons. So what do you do with that? I taught for a number of years. I taught undergrad. And then I started working for advertising agencies uh, such as Spike DDB, which is an advertising agency that was owned by Spike Lee and a number of other advertising agencies that in the 90s, late 90s and early 2000s were trying to understand what they call the air quote urban consumer. And what they meant by urban consumer was what today would be called the millennial consumer. But they were talking about mostly African-American and Latinx. Today it's called Latinx or Hispanic or acculturated Hispanic Latinos trying to understand their, their culture and how to market to them. And they, they needed someone who had a skill set that could speak to them in environments that were, how could I put it, that in, their, in, their, in their locals, in their communities, but then be able to go translate their wants, their needs, their values, their aspirations in corporate settings. And as you know, because we went to Khan College, I kind of was a Swiss army knife. And so I had the ability to kind of speak to young people in the air quote streets and on the ground and also be able to go into a corporate setting and translate what I heard to help these companies um, figure out how to market to these young people. And so that's the skill set. That's where the sociology was actually put into practice, where I got to kind of take theory and kind of what I was learning and put it into practice and, and then be able to take that back to brands. But my slant has always been there's a there's a two-way street and that we shouldn't just be extracting insights and, and the coolness and the trends of, of young people and then serving that to brands. We should also, there should be a purpose dynamic that's involved in there and that there should always be a give back component in this exchange between these communities and, and the brands that wanted to market to them. And that's always been a part of all the teams and all the teams that I built and helped to work on is this kind of give back component, which fast forward is no longer called give back. It's called, you know, it's, it's purpose, it's community, all these different terms, but have evolved into this notion of giving back and, and having impact and social impact and social purpose. And you have to make sure that that's genuine, right? In your job, I'm, I'm assuming. Can you give us an example right now of what Adidas is doing to, to really follow through on giving back to communities of, of color? Yeah, totally. So, and hopefully this is not as a long-winded story. Um, in the midst of the social, political, and economic turmoil that we found ourselves in 18 months ago, close to two years ago with the, with the murder of George Floyd, with the election of former President Trump and so forth, we felt as though that that was a moment, we meaning what we're, we've been dubbed the Coalition 12, 12 of us in the, in the organization of, of Adidas here in North America, got together and we said, this is, a, this is a moment. And I like to call it a crucible moment, a moment where you know that things will never be the same. And because we were all at, on stay at home, you know, alert, and we all had to be at home in front of our televisions and, and not outside very much, we were all kind of captivated by this moment of this death and, and, the, and the kind of riots that ensued and the marches that ensued. And it was, it was, I like to call it kind of collective emotional trauma that we went through. And however it turned out for us, whether you were heavily emotionally invested or not, it was something that we all went through together that kind of changed the course of things. And so fast forward, how did Adidas 
react to that in an authentic way, which I think your question is, well, we created, uh, we decided to come together and we spent many, many hours talking through how could the events that were happening externally from Adidas, how did they represent things that were happening internally at Adidas as well? And so in the same way that George Floyd's last words were uttered many times, which is, I can't breathe, we took that as, as a metaphor for, for growth and for access and for kind of a lack of, of opportunities within Adidas, right? So we all have good jobs and, you know, we're all doing things and, and making progress and earning, earning our keep. But we definitely felt as though there were pyrodynamics and power structures in play at Adidas that did not allow for its BIPOC community to really grow at the same pace as its counterparts. And so we took this emotional trauma and we turned it into a document called Our State of Emergency, which was about a 20-page document that we put together over the course of two weeks. And we had the opportunity to present that to the board, to the global board of Adidas, which is rather unprecedented. And Mm. within that document, we talked about accountability. So just in terms of anything having to do with discrimination or job opportunities or what have you. So we talked about accountability. We talked about people, meaning growth and development. We talked about investing back into the communities that we extract a lot from or communities that we use in our marketing and our in our communications but might not be invested in and so this document really set up uh, a number of ask for the brand to reinvest into its black and latinx communities and consumers and out of that document and out of the 14 days that we were out of office creating that document and then presenting it to the board we garnered a $150 million commitment from the brand. That $150 million is committed to the years of 2020 through 2025 for us to create initiatives, create jobs, and create opportunities specifically catering to Black and Latinx communities within North America, which is something that is unprecedented in the history of Adidas, which is one of the oldest athletic performance brands in the world. And so what that turns into is the creation of of new jobs, the creations of initiatives that are, once again, centered on empowering and creating access and creating something that we've dubbed called the change loop, which is taking young people from being just consumers to allowing them um, a set of resources, tools, and, and education for them to become, move along the spectrum of being consumers to creators to actual change makers. Because we know we're living in a society right now where change makers are probably the most valuable human resources that we can get. And so how do we create a a number of environments and a number of um, experiences that allow young people to go along that path? And so Adidas is actually in the midst of creating that and implementing that and operationalizing that as we speak. Wow, that is so good to hear. I mean, that's just so useful that really builds on all of your strengths. And obviously you've tapped into your, the community at Adidas, which I, I always talk about community and value of, of community. So just your mention of that coalition of 12 and that you reached out to the rest of, you know, in, in the company, you've just, you've done so much. So thank you for, for sharing that. And it really sounds like just taking it back briefly to my question about your education and what you do with the sociology degree and what you did postgraduate, you're educating, you're telling stories, and then you're also, while you're serving as a marketing executive. So I'm just, I, I don't know, does that make sense? I'm very impressed by everything that you're doing, that you, that's what it I is, think, that's what I mean when I say you have a cool job. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it is very, it's a blessing, 
it, it's interesting though, because I was having this conversation with my wife about how to, when you get to a certain age, and my wife and I just turned 50, and you feel like you're, you're still a teenager, uh, and you look around and you're like, we're, adult, we're adulting, and you look back and cumulatively, to your point, you, you, there's certain things that you're passionate about and that you've done throughout your life. And so me being an only child, growing up in Princeton, New Jersey, I've always, I was always a bridge builder. I was always someone who different groups came to to act as a middle person or to bring people together or to create environments, right? I, I, I was a part of a small team when I was in middle school and we created something called the Youth Cafe. And my mother still has this plaque, God rest her soul, she's passed away. There's a plaque that has my name and five other of my friends' names. And we created in a YMCA gym something called the Youth Cafe because in the 80s, there were too many you know, rich kids running around and houses that were open and too many parties. And we wanted to create a space where young people could come and like play games and listen to music and, and be creative without some of the other things that were involved in being a teenager and in high school. And we actually created this space. And now that I think about building communities and, and meeting at the intersection of sport and culture and fashion and music and wellness, it's kind of an evolution of something that's always been going on, right? And so I think, yeah. you know, when you think about what it is that we do right now, like meeting that intersection of passion and purpose is those things that have brought you joy throughout your life that you might not have thought was going to turn into anything, but that you worked at very diligently, right? Because, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time reading a lot of books and being a hermit when I was in grad school. I did really immerse myself in fashion. I do really spend, spend a lot of time with young people understanding like the, 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 the obstacles and the hurdles that they, that they were facing and, and bringing that all together does end up being cool, but it also is a part of being like not only cool, but inspirational and insightful. And I think that's that, that mix that brands find value and Adidas finds value in, and, and hopefully we can make impact in, in a lot of different communities because of that, that mix and, and, and finding people that are like-minded who share you know, similar values. Absolutely. I love that you just mentioned what you did kind of in, in your youth. Just talking to my partner, Michelle, who you know as well, the co-founder of Monumental Me, we were talking about helping adults just become more innovative at work and kind of tap into the sense of, of satisfaction and purpose. And we specifically were talking about remembering something that you really enjoyed in your childhood or in, as a teenager. And so just when you just mentioned when you created a gathering place for teenagers to get together and, and tapping into that and speaking to young people, I, I just, I think that's so important for adults to hear that. So a little bit of an aside, but that's just, I literally just had that conversation with her. So yeah, I, I, I think it's super important, especially if you look at the rates of people leaving their jobs right now, mm-hmm. you know, and reassessing what matters and, and what their values are. I think being able to, and I, and I feel like super privileged that I have the opportunity to have the job that I have and do what I do and be passionate about it and, and like it and also feel like it's making impact and at the end of the day, allowing my family to live. But it really is about, I think in this space that we're in where people are quitting and, and leaving their jobs is finding finding what gives you that sense of, of truth and, and, and makes you happy. And I think that oftentimes we live in in a capitalist society where people feel as though, you know, per- passion and purpose, commerce and, and your values are things that are antithetical to one another. And I think we're in a new era where people are trying to find the intersection of those things to make themselves not only happy, but also have, you know, create impact and also be able to live. Right. And so, yeah. you know, 
as we think about the new workforce, as I look at my teenage son who's 15 or my 12-year-old daughter, there's certain things that I think I'm going to champion for them to continue to do, whether it's a hobby such as design or fashion or whatever, and, and just continue to push them to to kind of geek out on it because it could be something that they end up making a living from versus when I was growing up, my, my immigrant parents were like, you're going to be a lawyer, or a doctor, or a teacher, or an engineer. That was it. They, they didn't really give me, even though I didn't go down that traditional path, in my youth, I didn't get too many avenues of what I could be. And I just think that the best thing for adults and young people is to, is to kind of push in this direction of there's a multiplicity of things that you can be and hopefully find an intersection to bring them all together to, to make impact and to make yourself happy too. Yeah. I think to me, you just define the value of a, of a liberal arts degree too. And, and any ology kind of uh, diploma, I have a psychology diploma, you, you, mm-hmm. you studied sociology. And when you mentioned that people come to you because you're a Swiss army knife, I mean, that, that you just, I think you just described why that's important when talking about your kids and totally. what you can do with that. Totally. And, and, you know, being a parent, it's also beautiful. My wife's a principal of a school and she taught for many years, but I also just think it's phenomenal for our children and young people to see their parents passionate about what they do and making impact. You know, they were locked away with us and they were at stay at home with us and, and learning remotely. And they watched both of us have to deal with the last 18 months and not only COVID. They heard us talking about these issues over and over. They heard about the solutions that we were trying to bring to the table. And I know I, I just can't wait to be 20 years older to see what they're doing and to see how much of, you know, this moment helped to kind of shape what they're going to become and the impact that they're hopefully going to make in their communities. That's great to hear that. I think that we, as parents, just touching on that, because I'm the parent of teenagers too, I like that perspective of I can't wait to see what they're going to be doing in 20 years rather than stop growing so quickly. I have to think about that way much more often. But but yes, that was a silver lining of COVID. I think it's such a struggle, but also I, I, I love what you just said about the kids being able to see how their parents make an impact, and especially if you do something you really love to do. I think that's hard, though, for a lot of people right now, as you just mentioned, the concept of this great resignation and people are getting very restless and want to do more. Like, Because that was one question that you, I was going to ask you that you answered. How do we align our personal values with our need to be financially independent? Um, so what you just answered that, but it may be very specifically if somebody comes to you who might be in a job that they just feel like this isn't working for me like what what might you advise them kind of mid-career to do in their in life or even in their in their 20s yeah kind of pivot yeah there's this amazing book that a really great friend of mine really great friend of mine wrote called good is the new cool marketing like you give a damn and there's a bunch of principles in good is the new cool where they just talk about like understanding and outlining and and mapping out what your values are, right? And and there's another book that I love to read and, and recommend to people called Belong. And both of those books, what they start out with, to go back to, to answering your question, is like really being intentional, mapping out like what your values are, like what you care about, right? And I think that, you know, oftentimes we 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 work and we work at the not the detriment, but like we work with blinders on and we don't necessarily think that values and passion and the workplace mix. And I Mm -hmm. think that although that is a luxury, 
I do think that more and more people, and that's why you see so many people leaving their jobs right now, more and more people are trying to figure out what is the intersection point? Where's that crossroads between my values, my passion, my purpose, and ultimately living in America or living in a society where I need to pay my bills? And I, I think the first step is like going through that exercise to be like, what, is the, what do I care about, right? And so me as a man of color and as, you know, with immigrant parents, I've always cared about identity. As a first-generation immigrant, I've always cared about a fair shake. I've always cared about identity. I've always cared about respect in which I treat people and people treat me. Education has always been a value that's been, you know, instilled in me. And, and I've taken those things with me and they've manifested themselves in different ways. But I can go back now and do that exercise and go, okay, whether it came from my parents or whether it came from my upbringing, like there's certain things that I know just feel right in terms of making me feel whole, right? And making me feel as though, especially as the, the young millennials say today, my best self, right? Like being able mm. to bring your holistic self to work is something that I've taken from millennials to, to be very empowering. Because I, I can say, because we're extras, right? You know, um, when I was growing up, I, I couldn't, I mean, in my first job, even when I was teaching or later on when I was in fashion, it was a corporate environment, I didn't necessarily show up as my full self. I didn't necessarily dress the way that I did. I probably got haircuts and cropped my hair a certain way to fit into what the corporate environment was and maybe didn't share my, my beliefs and values as, as I do now. And I think all of those things play into how you want to set up this ideal space for yourself to go be, I don't even call, I wouldn't call it an employee, but to, to build your career around a certain set of values, even though you might not, if you have 10 that you, that you bullet out, at least eight of them can be dominant in the world and in the workplace that you're in. Maybe not all 10 of them, right? But, you know, right. trying to find that balance of, of spaces and, and of work that is fulfilling, that is making change. And, and the word change maker is really big for me as well, because I do think that the society we're in right now, just to be a citizen is probably not enough, right? We kind of have to be like change maker citizens or there's there's a certain, like we have to act as catalysts to kind of change the world that our, our, the young people, our kids, the next generations are going to adopt or it's not going to be a grand place for them, right? Whether that's from a sustainability standpoint, whether that's through a, a gender and women's bodies and issues standpoint, whether it's through all of the the things that are out there, if people aren't change makers, like, I think we're going to find ourselves in a really difficult situation. I, I love that advice of mapping out your values. I, I think we can say we'll do that, or we can think about that, or try to you know, maybe identify one or two, but really taking the time to do that, I think is so important, no matter what age, what age you are. And then the idea of a change maker so important as well that everybody has a role to play. So yeah. even if you feel like, well, I'm just me, I'm just this one small person. I, I, again, I think tying it back to like, well, figure out what your values are and, and live to, to be your best self. I, I, I just, I guess I'm just saying you don't have to think, kind of start out like I'm going to change the world, which can be overwhelming for a lot of people, but just start with yourself. Maybe, I don't know if that's if you agree that that's what you're saying, but that's something that I just heard that I can just help somebody who's thinking, you know, how do I make that first step? No, I think, I think you're spot on with that. And I'll toss out one more book um, that I started reading in the midst of all the DE&I stuff that was going on at Adidas is this book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. 
and that book, to your point about each individual having responsibility and taking small steps within themselves, that's like a huge premise of this notion of how to become an anti-racist. So I was kind of like, what the hell is he talking about? But as you start to unpackage the book and it's a quick and easy read, you start to see to your point that everyone has the ability to to make change and to impact change. And it starts with yourself, right? It's not like you're going to go tackle some huge amorphous like ism that's out there that needs to be dismantled. It's the small steps. And somebody else was just saying to me, let's have this 1% ideology that if you can get better by 1% every day, then cumulatively imagine the, the change that you can make in yourself. And then that will ripple and make impact on others. But it does start with yourself and it's, and it's little steps. It doesn't have to be grand steps. And so anyone looking to, to make change or be a change maker, you know, 1% cumulatively will, 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 you know, make a huge ripple and a huge impact. Exactly. Exactly. You don't, you know, already have to be at that director level of, of a major brand. So would just anybody, anybody should feel they have the ability to, to make an impact. So I know we're running out of time and I have just two more questions for you. And also we can add anything else you want. But one is there's so much talk around mentors and sponsors and specific people that really when people are told, advised on how to grow their careers. Like it's so important to have a mentor or sponsor. I know you mentioned somebody that guided you back to continuing your degrees and education. Is there anybody else in your corporate career that you really felt was either a mentor or a sponsor to you? And and if so, how did you develop that relationship? Yeah. um, Our former CEO, Eric Litke, who recently left uh, the organization, I'd say uh, six months, maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit more. But Eric Litke, I would say was a definite mentor and he was a CEO and it's kind of odd that I can, I can mention him and, and say that he was a CEO is that I once again had the opportunity through work I was doing before I joined the brand because I was so passionate about what it is that I was doing and, and specifically to make a connection with Eric was that I was leading focus groups and consumer insights immersions for his front line for everyone that reported to him called his front line. So all the kind of VPs and senior directors that reported to him, he would take them on a biannual trip to our key cities around the world and and do these immersive kind of three-day sessions with them. And there'd be a financial component. There would be a business, you know, how's the business working? How's the market working? And then part of it would be what what are the consumer insights that we need to be aware of to help shape our our business, our strategy? And so I led those. And so because, you know, as we said before, teaching, working with young people, fashion, authenticity were were things that I really cared about. Those sessions usually became very, very memorable for his front line. And year after year, you know, one year, the first year he would say, and he was very wry, like a CEO is, and he would say, you know, you got lucky on that one. Like, did a good, basically that was his way of saying you did a good job. And then after many years of doing similar immersions for his group, he was finally like, he, he had been, he had become an advocate, you know, he'd become a mentor and he would, he would mentor me and he would say, you know, you, you can take this piece of what you do and, and make it into something larger for companies such as Adidas. And the work that you and your team are doing is really impactful. And I would be, have a line and be able to reach out to him and just get that get the guidance that you can get from someone who's senior who helps to run a company but also i think the biggest piece out of it is is the 
the confidence and the acknowledgement that the work that you're doing is impactful. And I think that can take people a very long way. And so mentorship is not necessarily like dedicating inordinate amount of time to trying to grow someone. It's, it's really giving them tools and confidence and self-esteem to, to know that they can accomplish what it is that they're doing. And that's what he did for me. And that's why I ended up coming into the brand, leaving the agent side, coming into the brand and, you know, can have this conversation with you and, and kind of be seen as, as a mentor in different scenarios myself. I think that one of the biggest pieces, once again, of mentorship is, is seeing someone, as they say, air quote, for who they are, like what it is their value is and what they're contributing and being able to help them to cultivate self-esteem and confidence and, and how that self-esteem and confidence and the expertise that they uh, are developing can be impactful. If you can communicate that to someone over time, because it doesn't happen overnight, but if you can communicate that to somebody over time, you can basically, it's kind of like, you know, you, you don't, the analogy of you don't kind of give um, someone who's in need fish, you teach them how to fish. You don't give them the food, you teach them how to use the rod and the hook and, and so forth. And then they can, they can continue to pass that on themselves. And I think that's what I think a mentor's role is, is to kind of teach you how to use tools uh, that, that you use and to sharpen those skills and that you'll be able to then go teach someone else and on and on and on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was a, definitely a two-way relationship too. He really appreciated what you could bring and your professionalism and everything that you have to offer. And then you were also able to obviously really gain from, from his mentorship as well. So I think it's a two-way, two-way relationship. Totally. Um, yeah. So great. Okay. I have one last question before I let you go. This is my signature question that's evolved over time. I want to ask you, Andre, what would you tell your 26-year-old self looking back from where you are today? <laughs> oh, man. What would I tell my 26-year-old self? I would tell my 26-year-old self, focus. I would tell my 26-year-old self to focus. And I say that because at 26, and I think naturally so, you're, you're doing a lot of different things. And I, I think telling my 26-year-old self to focus and maybe be more mindful, mindfulness is something that I think is, is huge, the practice of mindfulness and kind of being hyper-aware, but being very aware uh, and intentional about things would have helped me to hone in on things a little bit earlier and whether that be, you know, a love of photography or storytelling or fashion, maybe I would have honed in on those things and been a, just maybe been a little bit more dynamic in my output. And I think that at a younger age, you know, I would have had the ability to, to, to do and create a bit more than, than I have. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not looking back at it and saying, man, I wish. I just think that 26-year-old self, the advice I would have given is just to focus and be a little bit more mindful, not necessarily to focus on one thing, but to be aware of the things that you're pouring yourself into and how you can turn those things into something that, that, has, that has value and that has staying power. I love it. We have not had that answer yet. I think that's so important. All right. Well, Andre, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This was great. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity and hope that there's a couple of nuggets in there that people can take away with them.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Many nuggets and useful, specific advice. And I'm also going to put your book recommendations in the podcast notes. So thank you for that as well. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information or to join our community, visit our website at monumentalme.com or follow us on Instagram at monumentalme.we. And if you have any suggestions for interviews, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at monumentalme.com. Thank you.